So I'm watching the game last night, and when Michigan is suddenly beaten in the waning seconds of the game, I thought there thinking to myself, I wish there was a Christian way to cuss right now. <laughs> and then I remembered this text, you know, because I've been reading it all week. <clears throat> if you say, you idiot, then you're in danger of judgment. And if you curse, you're in danger of hellfire. I just took a walk. <laughs> I was just like, I got to leave. I want to talk this morning about that. I want to frame again the part of the discussion. We started a few weeks ago saying, people fail to become saints for the same reason they fail to become great poets. They never get around to being the kind of person that is called for by the times in which they live. So... What are the times, and what kind of people are called for, and what are these people actually doing? And we said in the first few messages, the times that we're living are times of exile, where the people who are uh, faithfully and devoutly religious people are gradually being displaced from places of influence and moved to the margins. This doesn't mean that we're losing our influence. It just means we have to find another way to influence than always being in control of something. It was to these people that were lifted up from their homes and moved to foreign countries where they had to establish new identities. They were really aliens. They were refugees that Peter writes in the New Testament. And Peter says, as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now when he said that, he lifted a phrase out of the Old Testament. That phrase, for it is written, be holy. Because I am holy. He lifted it out of the Old Testament and he moved it into the New Testament so he could say that to people that were getting ready to go into exile. I think this is important, people. Because I think what Peter is saying is when you live in exile, what makes you important to the world is not your minority status. We have enough minorities. What we need is a holy minority. So, so what makes you valuable to the community that has just asked you to leave, to go to your room, remember, is not the fact that there's only a few of you or that you go to church every Sunday, but that you are actually holy people. You're different in the way that you live. So in order to unpack or at least understand what Peter meant when he said, be holy people, I went back into Leviticus and started to read the passages that were surrounding that phrase. It is written, be holy because I am holy. And I'm asking myself, what really does it mean to be a holy person? And when you read these chapters, 
that are around that phrase that Peter used, you find yourself right in the middle of what the Old Testament calls the holiness code. It's a series of laws regarding moral practices. So in Leviticus, a holy person is not a priest, just a priest. It's not someone who's older. It's not your grandmother, you know, someone who's been in church forever. A holy person in Leviticus is someone who follows these practices. And the beauty of these practices or rules, if you will, um, uh, is that they're available to everyone. You really don't need to be born a certain kind of person or inside of a certain kind of family. You can live in these ways, and when you live in these ways, you are a holy person. And then when you're on the margins, your life is valuable to the center. You mean something to the center. You are where God is calling people in the world to go. Now what you've just heard me say is that not everyone on the margins uh, is in the remnant. One more time. What makes us the remnant is not our minority status church. It's our holy lives. I, I, I don't think I can be more plain about that. I know that when I said before that we were being moved to the margins, I, I got a lot of comments from people that were like under 35-ish, you know, and lots of people in this hour are in that age bracket. And what I kept hearing from them was, oh, Steve, man, come on, we know this. We grew up in an America where religious people were not in control. Or we come from other places in the world where religious people are not in control. We know what it means to be on the margins. Do you know what it means to be holy on the margins? What makes us valuable to the culture is not our marginalization. It's our holy lives. Now, when I read these rules, uh, I started to cluster them around certain areas in our lives uh, where we are called to be different. I mean, Leviticus, this is Leviticus. I mean, this isn't the Gospels, you guys. This is Leviticus. It has tons of rules about two Thirds of them are negative, one-third's positive. And so what I did was I, I read through this holiness code and I started clustering all these rules, rules, rules around areas that are areas of our lives as well. And what I noticed is there are about four of them. One of them is the area of our sexuality. I talked about that last week. And we are called to live pure lives. You know, oddly enough, after I left the service last week, I, I went back to the back office and for about a half hour, I jotted down nine propositions that the popular culture believes about sexuality and marriage. I won't give them to you now. Call the office. I'll give them to you. Nine different propositions that the popular society believes about sexuality and marriage. And in each one of these nine propositions, there is not only a solid biblical witness to the contrary, there is also a growing body of sociological and neurological evidence to suggest that these propositions are in fact not true. 
So even if you're not a follower of the gospel, you don't even read the Bible or even care about the Bible. You just need better information. And, and when I was through and I looked at these nine things, I thought to myself, oh no, lots of people in the church believe these things. Because we're being fed these things all the time. Why do I say this? Because this is another way in which we are called to be different, not just small. Another one of those areas is in the area of civility. is a growing uncivil culture. Is it just me? Or since the time you were born to this day, does it seem like people have let go of some, not just morals, but etiquette and common mannerisms, kind of courtesies that they extend toward other people? So I'm Driving down the bypass this week. Holy cow. And I start making notes. Not, not while I'm driving, relax. But as I go back and forth to work every day, that's only a four-mile drive. I, I, I start noticing things on the bypass. And I think maybe we, we ought to just talk about, if I can, civility. So I started writing laws that maybe we could pass in the city of Marion. <laughs> when the light is yellow, prepare to stop. And when the light is red, actually stop. When you're done with your cigarette or your polar pop or your drive through food bag, keep the trash in your car. Indiana already has a state flower and the polar pop's not it. When you see an ambulance or a funeral procession, pretend it's your mother inside and pull over. Turn down your music at the light. We have our own. When you wave to someone, use your whole hand, not just your finger. When you park at Myers, keep a nice distance between your car and the one next to you. <laughs> You don't want to ding their car door, do you? And those parking spaces with the big blue squares and the wheelchair logos, those are for people who can't walk, not for people who don't want to. <laughs> if you put your makeup on at home, Instead of in your car with your visor light on, driving from the north end of town all the way to IWU, if you do it at home, you'll have a bigger mirror. Remember, a decision to pull into traffic is a commitment to drive the speed of traffic. 
And text before you drive. Not while you drive. And if you text at the light, remember, when the light turns green, you can go. Now, none of these, almost none of these are hostile acts at which a person gets in the car and says, I'm going to screw up the bypass for everyone. But what they are is just sort of incidental moments where a person is preoccupied with what is happening in their life or what they need or how they want to relieve themselves or how they can advance themselves. And they're not thinking of the common good. Turns out, this is the root of incivility. Incivility stems from the idea that the individual is somehow set off separate from the common good. And so, the way one speaks, or the way that one acts, or the way that one dresses, or the way that one responds, or the way that one expresses themselves, even on private social media, Civility begins with the assumption that even though we are not the same as community, we belong to community. When people become uncivil, they hope to live off of the structure and the benefit and the advantages of a moral and an ordered society without contributing to it. I see some heads nodding and some heads going, can we just go back and talk about sex? <laughs> this is a hard subject. There is a rise in anger in our culture the anthropologist Peter Wood, his book called The Bee in the Mouth, he talks about the difference between old anger and new anger. And what he says was, the old anger was something to be ashamed of. If you were in an argument and you were losing your point and you had no self-control, then you erupted into anger. But the new anger has a swagger to it. It's something that one hopes to get to sooner than later. So they can find their true emotions and express themselves authentically. You see it? And you see this again all over the social media and in common exchanges on the street. It is modeled every week or every day on talk shows or on news shows or in movies that we go to. This is the way to speak when you're angry and this is when you walk off. And we learn this and we start to model this. Witness the way people act in large public gatherings. I'm not against all sorts of expressions, but when you watch the way that one imposes their space or their will upon those who are around them, whether it's in a classroom or in a restaurant, they're mean to waitresses. Starbucks says, Sunday's my worst day because the religious people come through on the way to church and they're demanding and they're angry. Enter the holiness code. In Leviticus, there's this whole cluster of laws 
about the way people treat each other. Okay, here's how we'll get there. Imagine moving to Marion and someone says to you, what is the city of Marion like? How would you define the culture in the city where you live? And you picked up the book of Leviticus to say, this is exactly what we're doing. Let me define it for you. And this is what you would read. It's a city where people respect their mother and father. It's, it's, it's where when you reap the harvest, you leave something for the poor. You deal honestly with your neighbor. You pay people a wage before they go so they can eat that night. You judge each other fairly. People forgive others when they are offended. People rise in the presence of an old person and they respect them and they take care of immigrants that live among them and they use fair and honest standards in their business that's the way we treat each other in the city that I live in and that's a different city than the one we actually live in and so my question is this what would happen if there was a small pocket of people who did that. They didn't run out and try to evangelize everyone and persuade them all to become Christians because they knew that this was not their day. They just quietly and peacefully lived out another lifestyle. What if they treated elderly people with respect? What if they taught their children to work hard and to be fair? What, what kind of impact would that group of people have over time on the city? Keep reading in Leviticus. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Fear God. I am the Lord. Don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality or favoritism to the great. Judge your neighbor fairly. Don't spread slander. Don't stand aloof when your neighbor's in danger. I am the Lord. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke him frankly so you don't share in his guilt. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I am the Lord. Holiness in Leviticus is not measured by our passion for God. It's measured by our courtesy for other people. Oh, this is, this, is, this is painful to hear. Holiness in Leviticus is not measured by how passionate we are when we come into the sanctuary and worship. It is measured by the courtesy that we show to other people. If I remember right, Jesus said there are two laws, not one. One is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said they are like one another. What if they are connected? What if they are connected? 
What if a decision to love God with all of your heart on Sunday is connected to loving other people throughout the week? In fact, I'll raise you one. What if you never really did love God any better than you already love people? What if God is not the one to teach you how to love people? What if other people are the ones who teach you how to love God? What if your love for God, whatever you say it is, is overrated? It was never really any better than your love for people. Keep reading. Leviticus says that the love for other people is not simply an emotion that we feel for them. It's not that we have a fondness for these people. It's that we treat them in a certain way. And so the laws in Leviticus are clear about the way people are treated. It's not just don't bear a grudge. It's don't take revenge. Judge one another fairly. Pay them a fair wage. Do you see it? These are practical statements that express love not as a fondness for someone, but as a commitment for that person to thrive. Keep reading. It gets harder. Every one of the people that Leviticus just described to us All of these emotions, bearing grudges and not judging people fairly, you know, these things. These are never things that you feel towards your friends. I think he has our enemies in mind. Leviticus says, (laughs) there's a group of people in this world who annoy you. Yes? Think of their names. Don't say it. Just think of their names. And when you got their name, just mumble under your breath, Amen. Or something holy like that. (laughs) Every time you're in their presence, they do stuff wrong. And you know why they do it. It's because they're jerks. Those people. Those are the ones Some of them are in this room. That's why you cannot say their name. (laughs) And what Leviticus is saying is not that you have to start changing the way that you feel toward that person, but that you have to start changing the way that you treat them. This is practical action here. The person who annoys you the most is the one you are the kindest to. It's the one that you extend all sorts of grace and forgiveness to. Yes? It's your enemies. This is where Jesus comes in. He starts right there. And he talks to people like us who live in a culture that is becoming more and more and more uncivil. And Jesus gives us practical things that we can do. Remember, this is who we are. 
This is our identity. We're not like everyone else. We're supposed to be different. Now, how do we act? Jesus comes in and he says, you've heard that you shouldn't murder. If you murder someone, you'll probably go to jail. But I'm telling you, don't be angry without a cause. And when you are angry, you can't use slurs. You can't label people. Here, here, here's, here's the word. Restraint. <laughs> Some of our incivility rises from a lack of self-control. So get control. This is Jesus' word. He... he he assumes you're going to be ticked. Okay, so a week and a half ago, when the Lions get cheated at the end of the game, see these things matter in our house, it's late at night, bad call, we lose, I go to bed, and in the darkness, I just held it as long as I could. Finally, I just said, Whoop. What an idiot! And finally, my wife propped herself up on her elbows, looked over and said, You just need to calm down and go to sleep. <laughs> I said, Now would not be the time. <laughs> Jesus says, Don't do that. Steve, when, this is what I hear Jesus say. Steve, when the referee blows the call, and he did blow the call, Steve. <laughs> Say nothing. Put a firewall. Put a firewall of silence in between that sudden rise of emotion and that burst of self-expression. You can't change the way you feel, but you can decide not to express it. Some of you are thinking, oh, this is pretty self-evident. Not if you talk a lot. <laughs> See, some of you are quiet. You don't say hardly anything all day. But there are others in this room who think while they speak. I'm always talking to my wife about this. Stop. This is my problem. And this is hard to do if you're one of those external verbal processors. But this is rule one. Rule one is put a firewall. Restrain yourself from saying rash things when someone ticks you off. Wave with your whole hand. There. There's another rule. Jesus goes on and says, if you come into worship and... You know that someone in the worship service has something against you, then leave church. Just get up and leave. And go out to the atrium and reconcile. Don't go through the motions. Don't say, I'll get that later on. Leave your worship. Sit there and go out into the halls and the atriums or pick up the phone and schedule the appointment and reconcile with that person. Oh, this is hard because this is a culture of serial apologies. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. There I go again. Oh, I'm sorry. And what Jesus is calling for is not a string of apologies. He's calling for reconciliation. And reconciliation does not ask the question, will you forgive me? Reconciliation asks the question, what can I do to make this right? You don't want to be forgiven. You want the obstacle between you and the other person to be removed so that you have leveled out the ground and you can enter into a relationship with them again. Relationships never get, betty, uh, never get better with apologies and forgivenesses. They get better when people remove obstacles. I find this all the time when I talk to couples in the middle of a fight. One of the first things I'll ask the offended party is, what can the other person do to make this right? The most common answer is, well, I don't know. <laughs> And that's where the work begins. Because reconciliation can never go forward unless we can identify where the obstacles are and then begin to remove them. So a commitment to reconcile is a commitment to identify the things blocking the relationship and then to do everything in our power to get those obstacles out of the way. Jesus will go further. He will say, when that brother becomes an adversary... And he takes you to court. Settle your matters quickly. Before he turns you over to the judge and the judge to the officer. And then they'll throw you into jail. Word I write to myself is de-escalate. Incivility is often the result of people one-upping the other. Listen. These are not just rules about getting along. Church, we are not good at this either. When we get angry, we say too much. And when people tick us off, what we do is we consistently remove ourselves from them. Just don't want to deal with it. I'm happier when they're not in the room. And when they finally confront us or offend us, we raise them one. And the conflict escalates over time. And Jesus is saying, take a knee. A few months ago, our nation saw what I believe is the core of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, some people tell you, Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Can you imagine a small community of people who were good at this? What impact would it have on society as society gradually spirals down for there to be a strong community of people who knew how to love, not just friends, but enemies. And the more they didn't like them, the better they treated them. Wow, what a statement that would make. Some, as I said a few months ago in Charleston, South Carolina, a young man went into a midweek Bible study and started shooting things up. The last word one of the dead said to him before being shot 
was you don't have to do this. He spoke out of a different soul. And watch what happened. Following that tragedy, all of the newsmakers and all of the politicians immediately descended upon the scene with more rhetoric about gun control and background checks as if that were the cure of a nation's disease. When right in front of us, in one tragedy, we were seeing two souls, two alternate ways to live. One is to take life, and the other is to give it. Within just a few weeks, that little church community bonded together and formally forgave the one who shot them. And more than that, began to rally around the family of the one who shot them. Did we miss this? Did we read in our news that the solution to our problem was really more laws? And the solution to the problem was right in front of our face. It was the power of forgiveness. Every day you hear a different message. And so what happens is, it escalates. What would happen if there was a community of people that just says, I forgive. We need you. You and all your enemies. And you have them. Don't be nice about it. This is church. But don't be nice about that. You have them. We need you with your enemies and your adversaries to rise up and live out a different ethic. A community that is strong in love. No matter what. As hard as it gets, and as bad as they get, love them anyway.